0: Well, good morning, again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse by verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter twenty-four. We're going to be looking at verses fifteen through twenty-eight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, so we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. It's important that you have one, especially this morning. We're going to cover a lot of uh, a lot of ground this morning. Matthew twenty-four, verses fifteen through twenty-eight. Matthew 24 and 25 comprise what is known as the Olivet Discourse, so named because it's a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. Now what I want to do, and what we kind of did last Sunday, and we're going to do over the next few Sundays, is as important as application is, I'm going to probably give you more information than application. Application. See, normally I want to put in a sermon a lot of practical application. We'll get a verse here and a verse there, and then we'll, we'll see how we can apply it to our lives. But what I feel is with information comes application when it comes to prophecy, when it comes to end times events. In other words, the more you know, the more you're going to grow. So with that said, let's uh, read now Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28. Jesus speaking says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. And if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you before, and therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, There the eagles will be gathered together. The title of my message this morning is Understanding the Times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to be able to be in this place this morning freely with open Bibles on our laps without any fear of someone coming in and taking them away or hauling us off to prison, Lord. We are are truly a blessed people living in the country we live in with the freedoms that we have. Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. We want to say thank you and praise you for it. And now, Lord, as we have this opportunity to dig into your word, to hear from you, we pray, Lord, that we would have open ears to receive, to hear, to understand all that you have to teach us this morning. We thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to put their faith and trust in you. They're not saved. They're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? Thank you for our time together, Lord. We committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in 1995, a while back, there was a prophecy conference in Orlando, Florida. And one of the speakers was a man by the name of, of Albert Peak from Abilene, Texas. And he'd been teaching on the subject of Bible prophecy for over 60 years. And the topic of his presentation was the signs of the times. And begin by say, he began by saying, I began preaching on the signs 60 years ago when there were very few that you could actually see. Today they are everywhere. I'm no longer looking for signs. I'm looking or listening for sounds. And obviously speaking, of course, of the rapture of the church. And that was in 95. Specifically, First Corinthians fifteen fifty-two, which says, "In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed." We're listening. If if he was listening in ninety-five, all the more so we should be listening today. And I say that because the Bible is one of the books, really one of the only books, the only book that dares to predict the future—not once, not twice, but hundreds of times. And the question is, can we trust it? Well, we have the advantage of 2020 hindsight. We can look at prophecies found in scriptures where the future was predicted, which is now our past, and we can go back and determine as to whether or not these predictions were accurate. And I'm happy to say they are 100% accurate. And the greatest example of this, obviously, is the predictions of scripture about the birth, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're all there in God's Word, and we can see that they were fulfilled to the T. Well, God tells us about our future, which to Him is like His past, because God is in the internal realm, and, and all things are the same. He's not, he's not going out on some limb when He tells us about the future. It's like uh, looking at a parade. He's above, and He can see the beginning from the end, and He can tell us what's going on. We're just kind of right there in the middle, kind of watching, okay, what's happening here? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In other words, I will prophesy what will happen and it will come to pass. And the reason I bring this up is because there is way too much misunderstanding about prophecy in general, and especially in Matthew 24 in particular, this chapter alone has been greatly misunderstood. Now, this teaching in the context in which we're looking at this morning only comes after the Jews completely have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Herod's temple, Herod's temple uh, the disciples are pointing out the large, beautiful stones and how, how, how beautiful the glory of the temple was. And then Jesus made that you know, astounding prediction or prophecy. He said, do you see all these stones? Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, the disciples heard that and they said back in verse 3, privately they came to Jesus and said, hey, what shall these things be? What will the sign of your your, your your coming and of the end of the age? They, they asked him three questions. The first question was, "When shall these things be?" Is answered in Luke chapter 21. It deals with the destruction of the temple. It deals with the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and and as the Titus, the Roman general, uh, d- you know, commanded his armies to come in and literally destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Both Matthew and Luke's gospel make it clear that Jesus spoke of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and of the ultimate end of the age and its glorious return. See, prophetically, these two are connected, though separated by many centuries. Spurgeon put it this way, We must regard the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as being a kind of rehearsal of what is yet to be. Now, with that said, from 70 AD into the present day today, Israel has not had a temple again on the Holy Mount. And for many of the Jews today, that is their longing, that is their desire. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but I I need to mention it again. Matthew's purpose in writing this Gospel was that it was written uh, to the Jewish person to emphasize the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the King of Israel, the King of the Jews. So that as we come to Matthew 24, it's no different. In other words, we are on Jewish ground here. It's like we as a church... We're kind of eavesdropping in on what's going to happen with the Jewish people. Because here Jesus is talking about the great tribulation period. He's talking about his second coming. He's talking about the Antichrist. And, and then he's going to, you know, answer the questions that they had. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Because we, as a church, we're tucked safely home via the rapture in heaven. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning that the Lord points out. Number one, we're going to look at the Antichrist. Number two, we're going to look at the tribulation. And number three, we're going to look at the second coming. And again, we left off last week with Jesus answering the second question, what are some of the signs that will exist in the world that will show to us that your return is near? And Jesus pointing them out, saying, things will start off small, but then they will intensify the closer we get to what is called the great tribulation period. He said that there would be religious deception on the rise in verses 4 and 5. We see that today and certainly going to increase during the tribulation. He said that there'd be wars and rumors of wars in verses 6 and 7 and we see that today. But we know that will intensify during the great tribulation period. Jesus said that there'd be pestilence or diseases and then continuing on in verse 8 Jesus says all these things are the beginning of sorrows. They're just the beginning. Now, word there for sorrows is translated birth pains. Like a woman who's Speedily approaching her due date, so too is the end of this planet that we're living on. Now for those of you ladies that have given birth, you, you kind of know what it's like as you get further and further along in your pregnancy. Early on in the pregnancy, you, know, you feel the baby kick and you call your husband over. Oh, how do you feel the baby? And you as a dad come over and you, you, you I don't feel anything. Well, what are you talking about? Oh, feel over here. And then, and, and, well, there's a little kick. Oh, that, that's awesome. That's great. But then as the pregnancies go on, the woohoos turn into ouch, ouch. And instead of saying to your husband, come here and touch this, you say, don't even think about touching me. Because the pain gets harder and harder and worse and worse. And certainly we've been reading these things in the last days. They're gonna get worse. Pestilence and famines and earthquakes in various places. These are major contractions, if you will. Then we come to verse 15 of Matthew 24. You might say with the same comparison as a woman in labor that it's now time to deliver. The water is broken. The world is about to experience the worst pain ever. And Jesus says, speaking of this, look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Stop there for a moment. Because what Jesus is talking about and what we'll see eventually is that he's talking about the Antichrist and something he's going to do. Now the Antichrist, he goes by by many names. He goes by the son of perdition. He goes by the little horn, the prince who is to come, the one who makes desolate, the beast. And there's always been over the years speculations about who is this Antichrist. Some of the popular targets are Vladimir Putin or, or you know, he's it or, or Pope Francis or uh, Turkey's leader, Recep Erdogan and, you know, people said it was, you know, the, the past president, Barack Obama, or the current president, they're saying it's Donald Trump, and you know, they're kind of frequent targets. In history, Are targets where you you know, in about it was Adolf Hitler, or some say it was Henry Kissinger, which, this guy's still alive. I mean, he's getting up there in age. John F. Kennedy, they said, was what could be, even Mickey Mouse at one time, could be translated because the, the numbers of his name equals 666, therefore Disney is the Antichrist. Listen, this this is nothing new. And when it comes to the Antichrist, there's been a lot of attention by both Christians and non-Christians alike. Hollywood. I mean, they have depicted him in a number of films ranging from Rosemary's Baby to The Devil's Advocate to to The Omen. And when when The Omen came out, you know, there's a film not too long ago called The, The Antichrist, just the title there alone. TV shows that are about him. They always seem to give him the name Damien, and I don't know why. I mean, Damien's a great name, but it's, it's Damien. Yeah, it's like it's because it maybe it sounds like demon. I don't know. Or you had in the Left Behind series Nikolai Carpathia. So now you can't name your kids Damien or Nikolai, even though they were, they were great names. But let me tell you this: this coming world leader, this Antichrist, is not who you might expect. He's not going to be dressed in all black. He's not going to have 666 plastered across his forehead. There's not going to be steam coming up from behind him while the Darth Vader theme song is playing in the background as he walks up. No, I'm telling you, this, this world leader, he's going to be suave. He's going to be intelligent. He's going to be engaging. He's going to be magnetic. He's going to be charismatic. He'll probably be well dressed, someone perhaps looking a lot like the late John F. Kennedy Jr. He's gonna be a man that is a master at marketing his message and himself. And if Satan would ever have a son, this would be the guy the Antichrist. In fact, we're told in Second Thessalonians two, verse three, that he says, Don't let anyone deceive you. That day will not come unless until the rebellion occurs and the man of sin is revealed. He'll be known as a man of sin it will also be called the wicked one, 2 Thess- Thessalonians 2.8. Then the wicked one will be revealed and the Lord will destroy with the brightness of his coming. It's nice to know the end result of what's going to happen to him there. The word wicked means the lawless one. He'll oppose every law of God and he will emerge on the scene and just bring about great destruction. One more interesting fact about it in the, about him. In the book of Daniel we're told he will have no desire for women. Daniel 11:37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. So it's quite possible that this Antichrist will not have the desire of women. Many believe he would be a homosexual. I mean, think about that. There has not been a more perfect time for such a leader to rise up. There's no greater way to reject the Creator than to reject your gender and His design for your life. And what other time in history since Sodom and Gomorrah have we seen such perversion come out of the closets and onto our streets, threatening violence if we don't accept their ways? And now they're trying to, every chance they get to make it illegal to offend them in any way, calling it hatred speech against their sin? Is it any wonder that Revelation 13 says that the same Antichrist will make war with the saints of the tribulation and overcome them? So we see here Jesus is saying this man of sin, this, this wicked one is going to come on the scene and wreak havoc. Now we know that in history past, we, we kind of see a precursor of, of men over the years. I think a more up-to-date example of this would be Adolf Hitler when he emerged on the scene. We have to understand what Germany was like at that time. They had lost World War I, they'd been humiliated. Morale was at an all-time low. Their economy was in shambles. And here comes this charismatic order, this great communicator, Adolf Hitler, speaking of the glories of Germany, a seemingly voice of authority amidst all the chaos. He told the German people that they were a people of destiny, and he promised glory to come, and he promised that Germany would rule the world. In fact, he said the Roman Empire would be revived, and he would be the leader of this new revived Roman Empire. And interesting enough, he was able to lead Germany out of a failed economy in five years. What a lot of people don't know is that Hitler built schools and recovered German pride, lost in World War One. built freeways, managed to bring a sense of purpose, if you want to call it back, back to the German people. Hitler even reached out to the churches at that time, asking them to join him. Some did, others had discernment. Others knew what was going on. Some courageously resisted him understanding what what he was trying to do. Men like Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he would not support uh, Hitler's uh, agenda. Of course, it was only a matter of time before his real agenda became to be revealed. And he wandered to those same churches, and tore down crosses and replaced them with, with swastikas. He burned synagogues down to the ground, and then began to bring about what was called the Final Solution. At first they took the Jewish people and they broke into their shops and shut them down and forced them to wear that yellow star of David. But then they started riding them out into the ghettos, taking all of their possessions from them and then they just started executing them. But the German soldiers, many of them had a hard time just shooting these people so they had to devise a more efficient way of wiping off the Jews off the planet because they considered the Jewish people subhuman. And so they developed the the concentration camp. Six million Jewish people died. All that to say is that Hitler was like a forerunner of the Antichrist. He comes on the scene, Hitler dead, as this man of peace, and ultimately turned out to be one of the most wicked men that ever lived. Same thing, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, and and, and he should look like a good guy, but in time it will be revealed that this guy is the worst of all. But here's the thing I want to bring to your attention. We should not waste our time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. The reason being is because the Bible tells us that the Antichrist cannot emerge, cannot come to to, to light until the church is taken out of here. Until we as true believers are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, we're not going to know who he is this side of heaven. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7 and 8 again. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That's referring to the Antichrist. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. See, the Bible there is telling us that there is a, a preventing, a restraining force in the world today preventing the Antichrist from emerging. Now, what is that restraining force? Well, I believe it's definitely the Holy Spirit within the church. Now, some Times people misunderstand this and think, well, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken from the earth. No, that, that's that's not what it's saying here. That's not gonna happen. Because no one can come to Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And the fact of the matter is, after the rapture of the church, there's gonna be one of the greatest revivals, that the, the millions of people are gonna be put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit is still gonna be working here on this earth. But what about when it says in Second Thessalonians, he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way? I believe what that's speaking of is the work of the Holy Spirit from in the life of the people of you and, and me in the church. See, right now the Holy Spirit is stopping the spread of evil by using the church. Those true believers that are speaking up for what is right and what is true and when things are, are, are going in the wrong direction. Speaking out against abortion, speaking out against homosexuality, speaking out against corruption, lawlessness, speaking out against sin. The Holy Spirit is using followers of Jesus Christ to be that restraining force of evil in the world. But once the church is removed, once we're caught up, once we're raptured, then this man of sin, this antichrist, will emerge and start doing his dirty work. Literally all evil is going to break loose, explode on on this earth, as people start doing what is right in their own eyes. But here's the point. Don't waste your time trying to figure out who the antichrist is. Don't look for the antichrist. Look for Jesus Christ. Now, with that said, what will the Antichrist be doing once the church is taken out, once we are raptured? Well, this brings us back to verse 15. Look at verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what is this abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about? Well, to understand verse 15, as Jesus said, whoever reads, let him understand, We need to keep in context what's going on on planet Earth at this time. See, verse 15 here brings us to the middle of the great tribulation period, or a time of Jacob's trouble, or just the tribulation. See, after the rapture of this church, this, this man called the Antichrist will come on the scene. The Bible says he will come to power through a revived Roman Empire, which would be revived, a revived European community the United States of Europe, if you will. Ten nations out of Europe will, will arise that will align themselves and they will become. he will become their leader. He'll, be, he'll gain prominence, he'll gain world power. And then he's going to make this covenant. He's going to make a peace agreement with Israel to allow them to live and dwell in peace. I mean, think about that. No more turmoil in the Middle East. Seven years is peace agreement. Now, we get these seven years... That's spoken of by Daniel the prophet from Daniel chapter 9. And we're studying Daniel, Daniel on, on Wednesday nights. We'll get to chapter 9 in a few, probably in a month or so. But, but there were given what's commonly known as the 70 weeks of Daniel. Now many of us know these things, but maybe there's some that don't. And, and, and I want to kind of look at it for a moment. The phrase 70 weeks, the word for weeks there in Daniel 9 is the word heptad, which simply means a unit of seven. So, this is speaking of 70 seven-year time periods. Seven years, you know, go by, that's one out of the 70. Another seven years, that's two out of the 70, and so forth. You see, God gave to Daniel this whole program, this time frame to finish up his plan for the nation of Israel and to anoint the Messiah and establish him on the throne in Jerusalem. And if you understand Daniel chapter 9, you'll understand that 69 of those seven-year periods or 483 years of that prophecy had been fulfilled. So that leaves just one seven-year period left to be fulfilled. as you know, God has this giant stop watching heaven. He's watching, it's going by, it's going to be filled, and He stops it. In fact, we're told in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there should be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. So another way of putting that, there should be 69 seven-year time periods until the Messiah comes. Now, that commandment to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem came in 445 B.C. by a man named King Artaxerxes. Daniel writes, from that time, from the time of the coming of the Messiah, the prince would be exactly 69 sets of seven-year time periods or 483 years. Sir Robert Anderson has made a detailed study of this time period in his book published in the early 1900s called The Coming Prince. In it, he bases his calculations on the biblical calendar consisted of 360-day years, so that the number comes to 173,880. So setting that decree from the king of Artaxerxes, 445 B.C., counting 173,880 days, you arrive at April 6, 32 A.D. The day very well prophesied. Uh, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowd held him as, as their Messiah and what we celebrate Palm Sunday. But there's more. Because we read that later that, that, that week Jesus was crucified. That's why Daniel goes on to say that after the 69 weeks of years has passed, we read this of Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, And after the 62 weeks Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. That word cut off there means to be killed. So I believe that's when God took the stopwatch. He says, okay, we're going to stop it right there. 483 years, so there's a seven years left. The Messiah would come after 69 weeks of years, but then he would be killed. Not for himself, it says there. Clearly, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And from the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the church then, 40 days later, was born on the day of Pentecost. And we've had now... You know, roughly 2,000 years of the church age. And I don't mind calling it, you know, the dispensation of the church or the age of grace. Paul would, would talk about it in Romans 11, 25, where he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wiser in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in other words, we are waiting for this last person during the church age to get saved, to come to Christ, so the rapture of the church could take place and we as a church could be out of here. And then the last seven years will happen. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, would you come on already? Now I'm ready to go. All of us are ready to go. So give your life to Christ. Wouldn't it be great to have someone give their life to the Lord, finish praying that prayer, and poof, we're out of here. That'd be awesome i like to be that last guy. I was the last guy, you know. I think we am going to beat him up in heaven. Why did you wait so long, though? No. One more verse, Daniel 9, verse 27. This brings us back to verse 15 in Matthew 24. Daniel 9, 27 says this. Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, for one seven-year period, but in the middle of that week, So three and a half years into it, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So there's the abomination of desolation. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, the abomination of desolation. There's actually, just like there's a precursor of Hitler coming on the scene, there's also a precursor of the abomination of desolation. Historically, there's a man by the name of, of Antichus IV, uh, who was a Syrian king who ruled Palestine from 175 to 165 B.C. He took upon the name Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. He referred to himself as Antichus Epiphanes. He says, I am the manifest God. Now, his enemies nicknamed him the madman or the insane one, and, and he died of insanity, interesting enough. but But what he did is he went into the Jewish temple, 167 BC, and there he sacrificed a pig, obviously one of the most unceremoniously unclean animals there are to the Jewish people. He forced the priest to eat the flesh of this pig, and then he set up an idol of Zeus, uh, the pagan deity, there right in the temple. So this is kind of a precursor of what the Antichrist is going to do. Because we know it's a precursor because Jesus says some 200 years later in verse 15 here of Matthew 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let them understand. This is yet to happen. It's still in the future. Paul even explains the same thing in Second Thessalonians 2.4, talking about the Antichrist. He says, he will oppose and insult himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So at some point in the future, there's going to be this newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and the Antichrist, this man of sin in the future, in the tribulation will perform on a greater level, a worldwide level, what Anarchist Epiphanes did in 167 BC. Now here's what's interesting. There's no temple right now. But there is... A, a, I mean, there hasn't been a temple since, since Romans destroyed it in 70 AD, but there is an interesting group of people that's called the Temple Mount Institute. And they believe that God has given them the right to the Jews to build their third temple, and they're just waiting for the go-ahead. They're waiting for the right time. Everything they have is ready for this third temple to be built. They have the Sanhedrin in place, a Jewish governing body. They have priests that they've researched their genealogy. That they, 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 they're from the, from the Leviticus, from the tribe of Levi. They, uh, they're trained for the priesthood. They have the vestments of the priesthood. They have all the implements ready to put in the temple, made to, to, to speck. And they're just waiting for the right time to build this temple, not knowing that they're going to be fulfilling the scriptures of Daniel and Jesus and Paul, and that it will be the Antichrist's temple that he'll make desolate. That's all happening before their eyes. And you can see this. So after the rapture of the church has taken place and there's this peace agreement signed with this antichrist, this man called the the man of sin, and the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt, possibly even him coming in and saying, hey, i got a plan to rebuild this temple. We're going to bring peace. It's going to be awesome. This is what we're going to do. And they're going to say, oh, this is great. People are going to go, peace and safety, peace and safety. And they'll be thinking how wonderful life is. They'll be hailing him, uh, you know, as this Antichrist is their Messiah. They'll be looking at the Antichrist as though he was a Savior and Deliverer. But then midway through that seven-year period, three and a half years into it, the Antichrist's true colors comes out. And we read that uh, this newly rebuilt temple, he's going to place an image of himself and demand that everyone worship that image. And if you refuse, you'll be put to death. This is what is meant by the abomination of, of desolation in verse 15 and then the Antichrist will declare that if you want to buy and sell anything then you'll have to have this mark of allegiance to him to the Antichrist and it'll be a mark on your your, your, your forehead or in your hand probably not seen with human eyes no doubt with microchips all buying and selling with the Antichrist New Age Kingdom and he'll be in control but when he demands to be worshipped as God in that newly rebuilt temple then the Jews are going to be horrified by it and they're going to go what have we done? we we made a mistake. This is blasphemy. And suddenly, realizing that the, anti, the Antichrist, realizing the Jews aren't going along with the program, man, he's going to raise, uh, raise war against Israel, specifically against the Jewish people. And that's when Jesus says in verse 16 here, Matthew 24, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, in Judea, shows that Jesus is talking to the Jewish people. Verse 17. Let him who was on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. You might be thinking, well, who's going to be sitting on their roof during this? I mean, I mean, how many times are we on our roofs? But in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, they have a lot of rooftop balconies there. People relax on the rooftops. Verse 18. And Let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. See, there's a sense of danger. You need to flee for your safety. If you're out in the field working, Jesus says, don't go back and get your coat. Just get, don't go back for the family photo albums. Just get out of there. Verse 19, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. One of the most frightful thoughts is to be involved in a war and have to worry about your family, your kids. How can I keep them safe? Then Jesus says in verse 20, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why not in the winter? Is there something, you know, supernatural about the winter? Oh, it's cold in the winter. And that's why it is. Pray for the abomination of desolation doesn't come on the Sabbath day, he says. Why? Because in Israel transportation comes to a standstill on the Sabbath. Again, this is all speaking to the Jews. Abomination of desolation came on the Sabbath in our country, it wouldn't make a difference. I mean the Sabbath, you know, we treat the Sabbath as, as just an ordinary day. But here Jesus is warning them that they need to do these things. When? What? When you see the abomination and desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. You know, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we're told that in the last days, knowledge will increase. And I believe that he's speaking of prophetic knowledge. Yes, definitely we've seen man's knowledge increase exponentially over the years, but but now we understand prophecy like never before. We understand what's going on here. We understand Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people many, many years in the future from the time he said these words to get them prepared so that when they see the abomination of desolation they will be prepared. Why? Because that brings us to our second point, the tribulation. Look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. I mean, that's why Jesus said in verse 16, run to the mountains. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 and 9, it tells us that following the abomination of desolation, that the Jews will indeed run to the mountains, but it says that only one-third of them are going to make it to safety. Tragically, two-thirds of the Jewish nations will be caught in the flood of persecution that will follow Antichrist's declaration of war against them. The violence and the bloodshed is going to be staggering beyond anything this world has ever seen. The most Bible teachers, especially on prophecy, believe the remainder of the Jews will run to a, a, the ancient city of Petra, located in present-day Jordan. Petra, kind of a mysterious city indeed. In fact, explorer, teacher, adventurer named John Burckhardt in 1812 was determined to find Petra. And when he finally did, he couldn't believe what he saw. And although it had been abandoned for centuries and remained desolate to this day, he was amazed by the grandeur and the splendor. What was interesting, he says, is there's two eagles' wings carved on the rock at the very entrance of the city. And the reason it is, it's interesting is because in the book of Revelation, it declares that the remnant of Israel will be saved by the wings of an eagle, Revelation 12:14. Now some Bible scholars also like to put in the United States in there and say, well, you know, our symbol is the eagle and we're going to be helping, but I don't see that. the Lord says here that he'll take his people into the wilderness and protect them for three and a half years. You see, all of this is weaving together. The church is raptured. The Antichrist makes his treaty. Three and a half years to it, you know, all hell breaks loose. And in a way you or I cannot imagine the great tribulation, the great trouble. Jeremiah 30 calls it a time of Jacob's trouble. Israel's trouble. Where God pours his wrath out on this unbelieving world. See, we have here in Matthew 24, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh, then they're saying, this is going to be time unprecedented in Earth's history. There's not going to be time like this, nor will there ever be after that. Now, contrary to what some people believe, this has not happened yet. The world still has a future time of great tribulation, and it'll be greater and fiercer than anything the world has ever witnessed or experienced. And in fact, that's why Jesus says in verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, The word for shortened in the Greek has the idea of stopped instantly. There'll be three and a half years of tribulation, but it'll be stopped instantly. Guess what stops it instantly? I should say, guess who stops it instantly? The return of Jesus Christ. That's our final point, the second coming. And we're going to look at that closer next week. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 22. He says, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now here's where some controversy arises, some confusion begins. There are those that say that since the church is called the elect, that means the church is going to go through the tribulation period. Now mark this down, look them up later in passages such as Isaiah forty five, verse four, Isaiah sixty five, verse nine, or Romans eleven twenty-eight. And it's in those places that God specifically calls Israel his elect. See, not just Christians are called the elect. In fact, there are three groups of people the Bible calls or names elect. There's Israel, the church, and those who are saved during the tribulation period. And that is who Jesus is speaking of here. Those who came to faith in Christ during the great tribulation period. And they're going to be looking for Christ to return, to to come back to this earth. I mean, you think about this today. Oh, I had a rough day at work. I just wish Jesus would come back. What happened? Oh, you know, I didn't have lunch today. I don't want Jesus to come back. Nothing would be compared to these tribulation saints. I mean, looking for Jesus to return, what they're going through. Jesus said to them in verse 23, listen, things are going to get really, really bad on this earth. And at that time, you're going to be really looking for me to return and hoping I'll come back and, and put an end to all of this. But until I do, he says in verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even elect. See, I've told you before. And Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. You know, that, that in the days that we live in right now, even before the rapture and tribulation, there's so much religious deception going on. Satan is about uh, you know, able to duplicate anything God can do when it comes to deceiving us. I think about the plagues there in Egypt when the magicians of Pharaoh duplicated them, which is pretty stupid if you think about it. I mean, they would get double trouble. Okay, God brings lice. Oh so, yeah, God can bring life. Well, we can bring lice too. That's dumb. I mean, but they reached a point where where they could no longer duplicate what God was doing. Really, they separated the men from the boys and they couldn't do what God did do because God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. Satan is an imitator, a liar, a deceiver. And he's got an imitation of everything that God has and the closer we get to the last days, the more religious deception there's going to be. And the only way we can keep from being deceived is to hide God's Word in our hearts. Knowing the Word of God, Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But you see, during the tribulation, these, these Jewish believers, they're going to be looking for the real Messiah in a whole new way. They're going to be hoping and praying for the Lord's second coming. So Jesus is saying, stay put. Stay safe. Don't be deceived. Verse 26. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. See, they're going to come on the scene. Hey, come on out. We, we, we found the Messiah. Come on out. Oh, he's over here. He's over there. Jesus says, don't believe any of them. Why? Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is saying, when I come back, everybody's going to know it. It's going to be like lightning. It's going to be obvious to everyone. He didn't say, when I come back, I'm coming again to Brooklyn in 1921 to reveal myself to the Watchtower Society and the Jehovah Witnesses. He didn't say, I'm coming again in the late 1800s to reveal myself through magic spectacles to Joseph Smith and the Mormons. didn't say any of that. When I come back, Jesus says, it's going to be like lightning. Everyone's going to see me. So, Jesus, in answer to what will be the sign of your coming, I believe Jesus, I mean, he gives a pretty good answer. And finally, he says, as he's prepared to answer their last question, when will the end of the age be? He says in verse 28, For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles, more literally vultures, will be gathered together. Now here, Jesus is making a reference to the final battle of Armageddon that is described with more detail in Revelation 19. We'll look at it more in the weeks to come, but it's the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Final uh, battle there, final world war in the Valley of Megiddo, and and indeed there'll be uh, carcasses, there'll be, be bodies there, and vultures will follow. All that to say in the same way this old world system that we're living in, with all of its pride, all of its arrogance, will become nothing more than a dead carcass. No matter how much we progress we make politically, you know, the system will always be corrupt because of the depravity of man. Yes, things are wrong in our society and the answer lies not in capitalism. It doesn't lie in socialism. Doesn't lie in communism doesn't lie in the Republican Party. doesn't lie in, the, certainly not the Democratic Party. The answer isn't in democracy or anarchy. The only answer is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. And it's found in the return of Jesus Christ when He sets up His kingdom and His righteousness. And I say this, the only reason Jesus hasn't come back yet for His church is because He has a job for us to do. Because the Bible says He's not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance. And I want you to know that that God is still moving powerfully and I believe more so even as this day approaches. God is going to be moving in people's lives. In fact, in some of the most dangerous countries for a Christian to live people are coming to faith like never before. I don't know if you caught the headlines, the recent headlines on Fox News, it was this, Iran has the world's fastest growing church despite no buildings and it's mostly led by women. That came out with that. That is amazing. And it talks about this new film directed by Dalton Thomas that tells the story of the fastest growing church in the world, the underground persecuted Christian movement in a country known for radical Islamic terrorism, Iran. And he says that the women are leading the charge. According to the documentary, Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2, one unidentified Iranian church leader says in the film, What if I told you Islam is dead? What if I told you the mosques are empty inside Iran? He continues, What if I told you no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of Iran. I love that. He goes on to say, what if I told you the best evangelist for Jesus was the Ayatollah Khomeini? He says, why? The, Atali- the Ayatollah has brought the true face of Islam to light and people discovered it was a lie after 40 years under Islamic law. A utopia, according to them, they've had the worst devastation in the 5,000 year history of Iran. Thomas, the director, calls it the Iranian awakening. I, I like that. Now get this, in the documentary, one of the women believers, she says this, We know that if they get us, the first thing they will do to us as women is rape us, and then they will beat us, and ultimately they will kill us. This is the decision we have made, that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Because I have this thought, when I wake up, that when I leave that door, I may not come back. An Iranian church underground uh, leader explains their goal is not planting churches, not getting as many converts as they can, but it's making disciples. The leader says this, Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in the culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. Jesus said that I want you to go and make disciples of all men in all nations. The pastor explains everything they do underground is built on prayer. We find people of peace through prayer. He says, I don't know about you, that just convicted my heart to the core. I said, Wow, makes me want to do so much more for Jesus Christ until He returns. I want to close with this. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, so that seven-year tribulation period is coming. He goes on, and which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, these things that we talk about, we looked at, it's going to happen because God's Word says it will. And if everything we strive for materially will explode eventually, then what should our priority be? I mean, the the message of Scripture is clear. We're just pilgrims. We're just sojourners here on this earth. And yeah, God can bless us with cars and houses, but we're not to make them our priorities because it's all going to burn. It's all going to dissipate. It's all going to dissolve. Peter says we're to keep our eye on the big picture. Listen, I'm not looking for peace in the Middle East. I don't think it's going to happen. Or for the temple to get rebuilt while I'm, you know, still here. I'm not looking to the great tribulation to begin. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. And I believe he's coming very, very soon for his church. And so as Peter says, we believe we should be setting an example when it comes to holy conduct and godliness. We should recognize the signs of the times that we're living in. And with boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit, go out and one last push, reach this world for Jesus Christ. And again, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, what are you waiting for? <laughs> give your life to Him. As soon as we're done, the elders are going to be up front, and the men's leadership, and, and, and some of the wives, if you're a woman, and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, come and talk to us. We'll give, give you a Bible, and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the promises that we find in your word, Lord, that you have not appointed us, your church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, that we can avoid all this, Lord, because we have this relationship with you. Not that we won't go through trials and tribulations and struggles, Lord, but nothing compared to what this world is going to experience. And we thank you for that, Lord, as as your children. And we do pray, Lord, if there is anyone that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you to have their sin forgiven, they're not born again, Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning? And for us, Lord, we pray for a refilling of your Holy Spirit to give us that boldness to, to be that restraining force, Lord, in this evil world, in this wicked generation, that we might see a revival in our state, in our country, Lord where we still have these freedoms that we enjoy. Bless us, Lord, as we leave this place today, Lord. Help us to keep uh, our priorities in order, Lord. You first in our lives, then our families, then the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's so all stand and we'll do one last slide.